O Christ, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, of you and me. Grant us your peace. In the name of Jesus, gives me a great pleasure to spend a few moments together this morning with you in the word, my dear friends. Some months ago, Carol and I had a chance to go down to Florida and visit our daughter. Actually, I've only been to see her. They've been there over a year now, a year and a half, and I've only managed one trip. I'll try to do better uh, in the future, especially now they managed to buy a house and it needs a lot of work. So uh, having some free grunt labor from Pop uh, probably won't uh, be, they won't reject that kindly offer. Uh, but one of the things that I found really striking about their school is their classrooms are basically all double-wide trailers. Now, up here we have snotty remarks about people who live in trailers in the South, uh, but actually it makes total sense. In fact, I've seen them in California too. It's a really cost-effective way to get up an educational institution for children, isn't it? If you live in a warm land. And as I was looking at it, you know, my first thought was, well, where's the corridors and hallways? Here's the secret. They don't need them. It's always warm there. The worst it gets is you maybe put on your jacket before you step out of the double white. They don't have to waste money building hallways. Because the worst that happens is it just rains a little bit. Well, actually, it rains a lot. But still, that's pretty cool. Uh, but being Florida, it does rain a lot. And there is a drainage canal behind their row of double wides. And they have a friendly gator who lives in there. And I said, aren't you scared? And they said, no, he never, he never, he stays in his drainage ditch. He doesn't come out onto the playground. And I thought, well, that's good. Can you imagine what it would do reputationally for your school uh, if one of the kids uh, got, a, got some gator tooth prints on his leg? That'd be very bad for morale and very bad for marketing, wouldn't it? And they said, well, yeah, the gator doesn't come out, but the water moccasins do. And I thought, yikes. That's worse. I don't know about you, but snakes creep me out. I hate snakes. Don't like them one bit. Water moccasins are, are pit vipers. They're nasty little guys. And uh, one of the things you need to, to be, if you're going to be the pastor of a church in Florida, you must be licensed as a snake killer. I'm only partly kidding. Uh, I got a picture of Liz's classroom, and on the deck in front of it, there, there lay a dead water moccasin with a proud pastor. Uh, the way you kill him, by the way, this is vital information for you. If you're ever visiting a Lutheran school in Florida and you should need to swing into action if there's a water moccasin, the tool you want to go for, assuming you're not packing a gun, is a rake, is a steel rake, because it gives you that, that distance you need to stay away from them and you just you just pound, whack it down until the snake stops moving. Uh, and that's what you do. And that's what Pastor Zahn did. So there he was with his trophy. My friends from Africa who lived out in bush country tell me that you have got to cut the grass and weeds outside of your home if you are living like in some kind of compound. You must uh, denude the area around your house of any kind of vegetation in order, there's one main reason for that, so that you can see if there are any snakes nearby, especially if you have children. This is a big deal. Snakes give people the creeps, and part of it, I think, is God's curse on the animals. He said, on your belly, you will creep. 
Uh, Adam and Eve, you know, we groan under the heavy curses of sin that God laid on Adam and Eve and all their children. Uh, and you can read up in, on those curses in Genesis 3. But he also put a curse on snakes. In some way, uh, God seemed to blame this animal for collaborating or cooperating with Satan. Uh, did Satan have to ask permission to enter that disguise? I don't know. It almost seems like he did because God was angry at the snakes. And did they have legs? Like, did they lose their legs and have to crawl? How do you, that's how you made them to get around, isn't it, Lord? I mean, don't be mad at snakes. You built them like that, right? Well, who knows? Maybe not. If he said that part of your punishment is that now you're going to have to slither on your belly, uh, that, then that's what he meant. From now on, your means of locomotion will be eaten dust every day. But they're, they're wiggly and squirmy. They've got that slick kind of feel to it. I don't even have zero desire to touch a snake. I feel like Indiana Jones in uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember when he lowered himself down into an underground Egyptian uh, sort of temple? that he had just discovered, and then his enemies above him uh, were glad that he had found it, and they kicked off the ropes that they had used to descend and then slid a stone block in place, so they were now trapped, so the only way out was to go down. They couldn't go back up. So they had a torch, at least they had a tiny bit of illumination, and Indy throws the torch down to see what lies below them that they're gonna have to go through. And to his horror, he goes, oh, snakes. Why is it always snakes? And then his helpful Egyptian buddy says, asps, very poisonous, Sahib. <laughs> it's always been that way. And I think lurking behind it all is the realization that it was through the vehicle of a serpent that the human race was lured into rebellion against God and the disasters of God's judgment brought upon us all. And the fact is that the great champion that God foresaw was going to come, that he would send, was going to come to crush the skull of the serpent, but first receiving snakebite from those fangs, one in each hand and one in each foot. And you can imagine Christ on his cross being killed there as though the nails in his sacred body actually were the fangs of a poisonous serpent. I'd like to investigate one of the most powerful stories of the Old Testament with you in which we see Lent. All of the features of Lent are there. We're going to see that God's mercy was rejected his will and guidance for his people were rejected and despised. With a bitterness of spirit, the people wished they had a different Lord. We'll see the depths and fury of God's wrath coming upon them once again to realize that his wrath is much deeper than we might realize. It's certainly greater than any anger you could ever gin up but we'll see also his forgiving mercy, his miraculous forgiving mercy. And the, the instrument of his mercy had in appearance the same ugliness of the assault of what the people feared. 
All right, that's enough talking about the Bible. Now let's actually dip into it and hear the story. It comes right on the heels of one of God's miraculous military victories for the people of Israel. Uh, you know, when we think of the conquest of the land of Canaan by the released slaves from, from Egypt, that the Israelites became an occupying army, we almost always think of Joshua with that. Joshua was the military leader who helped to subdue the land and give it back to Israel. Uh, and as a sign of judgment upon the Canaanites, God took the land away from them. But Moses uh, actually presided over seven great military victories even before Joshua took over. And this is a story, uh, it's, it's after the 40 years in the wilderness, the original generation of rebels had died. Their children were now the grown-ups. They're now heading for the land of Canaan, but they experienced a kind of a, a frustrating disappointment. They petitioned that the nation of their relatives, the Edomites, which lay in their way, would let them pass. And they promised not to mess with them or disturb them if they would just be allowed peaceably to pass through on their way north. And, you know, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother Esau. So their, their family, they also are sons and daughters of Abraham. And the Israelites honestly expected that they would be allowed to pass through, but the Edomite army said no. And in fact, they mustered their troops and brought a formidable attacking army. And so the Israelites had to back off and loop all the way around the Arabah, that big crack in the earth underneath the Dead Sea and head eastward and go to the desert road and go all the way around. So this meant many more weeks of marching in the desert and they got kind of sour. Then came uh, er, uh, Moses' sister Miriam died, Aaron died. Then they had that miraculous victory over the town of Arad, uh, which they the Lord gave them complete victory after it looked like they were going to be defeated. And now they're traveling from Mount Hor, where uh, Aaron was buried by God. God was Aaron's funeral director, as he was going to also be Moses, along the route to the Red Sea. So they had to back all the way down, go across the Arabah to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. It said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? That was 40 years ago. They're still looking backwards with longing. We, we liked our life better then. Most of them had no memory of that. Even the oldest of them were children in Egypt, but the talk among them was, it was better in Egypt. We would rather be slaves with a predictable diet than have to live out here in the uncertainty of this desert. And they didn't like Moses. We don't like your leader, God. We don't like your guidance. We don't like your plan. We want to be slaves again. Uh, we're going to die in the desert. Well, they hadn't. They were still very much alive. There's no bread. There's no water. The previous chapter, God had made water come out of, out of rock. That's, so that's a lie. And we hate this food. They were sick of manna. 
Well, there's a slight point to that. For 40 years, they'd been eating malto meal, which is nutritious and all, but it, 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 it has a certain, shall we say, sameness. On the other hand, they didn't have to raise it. It fell out of the sky every day. It was camping food. When you're camping, I mean really camping, not like plushy camping in a fifth wheel or taking your gigantic mobile home uh, and driving around. I mean really camping, like you're in a tent or even more or without a tent. You're just sleeping under the stars and, and you're, you're sort of foraging for your own food. Uh, you know that your diet isn't very extravagant. You maybe packed some stuff, but you might have to do some fishing and uh, might have to live off the land a little bit. That's, that's kind of tough. Okay, so you're not going to have much variety. Well, okay, this is survival food. This is not restaurant food. They, they wanted to be back. They said our life would have been better if we were back slaves in Egypt. Now, this story of the snake has the same sort of frustration for me as the Tower of Babel story, because it's so short. Like, I want it unpacked. I want to know a lot more stuff about what's going on. I got a, I've got a hundred questions for starters about the Tower of Babel story, and I got some about this too. What we now may assume is that this isn't just a little bit of whining, like the people just had a, a sort of a bad day, like they, they're sleeping in the, in the desert and they like got a crick in their neck because they slept funny. You know how sometimes when you, when you get up and something wasn't right about your posture when you were sleeping and your back hurts and so you're grouchy in the morning. This is not just temporary grouchiness. This is the very same rebellion that led Adam and Eve to declare to God, we think we're better off without your word and your guidance. We think we can make better decisions. We think you're cheating us. That was the gravest insult. They're living in paradise, and Adam and Eve basically looked at God and said, you're cheating us out of some things that we deserve, the better life that we deserve, and we can seize it for ourselves. We would do a better job of running things if we had control. And that's the sick lure of everything Satan has always been thrown at. It works with you, doesn't it? The lure to be in control. Make your own decisions about the way in which you behave. What are going to be the principles that govern your life? What are going to be the laws to which you submit? Or if there are any at all, maybe you refuse to submit to any. This is the same human sickness that so corrupted Adam and Eve. They inherited from the snake, from Satan, and they gave it to us, and it was richly evident here. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And you got to assume that there was nowhere to run because suddenly they were everywhere. You know, God had sent quail for them to eat, and the quail were so plenteous, they flew down nice and low. So all you had to do as an Israelite that day of the Lord's giving quail is they didn't even make you work at it. You didn't need a gun to shoot them out of the sky. God made them fly down low, and you just take your tennis racket, and you could swat them down because they were cruising, flying slow right in front of you. 
It was easy to eat quail. Everybody ate quail that day. But everybody had the snakes too. And the snakes suddenly were everywhere. They seemed to come out of nowhere. And you could run, but you couldn't hide. There was nowhere to hide. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Can you imagine the terror? Can you imagine the moms running around trying to find their children when suddenly there were poisonous snakes everywhere? Could you imagine the screams and the shock and the pain in a mama's heart to see a poisonous asp with its fangs buried in your child? The shrieks, you would never get over it. And then the snakes were coming for you. This was a little bit of judgment day come early. Here we see what God thinks of human evil. And it is worse than we could even imagine. This is just a clue of, of the judgment of God. And this Lenten season is a very perfect time to pause a little bit and recognize that we share responsibility for that same attitude of rejection of God's ways and words and will. The snakes should be coming for us too. We confessed our sins before, but in a kind of a graceful, musical, stylistic way, <clears throat> it's almost like a little ritual, but those words were real. We really do deserve the wrath of God as well. The snakes should be coming for us too. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord. And they had the intelligence to realize, we also rejected you, Moses, God's chosen leader. When we rejected you, that's adding to the sins against God. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now God could have said, all right, Moses, I will. And the snakes could have just slithered away. And the venom that hadn't killed people yet would just sort of be neutralized and the people would get up off the ground and start talking and walking again. But instead, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses said, that's ridiculous. Metal snakes never did anything for anybody. No, he didn't say that. I would have been thinking that. But so great was the panic, Moses' ears were very tuned to what God said. So upon being given some seemingly absurd instructions, here's what he did. He made a snake out of bronze, and he put it on a pole. They're a traveling desert show. Where on earth are you going to get a bronze foundry in the middle of the desert? Well, I invite you to recall that they left Egypt with a lot of plunder from the Egyptians, some of which were articles of bronze. Recall that all of the metal items of service, at least the ones involving burning in their tabernacle, had all been fabricated from bronze. 
They were living in the Bronze Age. In fact, if you study the historical eras of human development, uh, in the years before Christ, they were often, these eras were designated by what advances in metal technology had been made. The, the first and easiest metal to make implements out of was copper. So the Copper Age, unfortunately, needs the hottest fires. The Copper Age came first, then came multi-century long bronze eras. It was called early bronze, middle bronze, late bronze. We are now living in the late bronze era, so the technology was well known, and the Israelites had already shown that even on their march, perhaps they had wagons, wheels, wheeled vehicles did exist, maybe they had some cattle-drawn vehicles where there uh, would be a mobile foundry that they could set up a blast furnace and do it. At any rate, Moses quickly gave orders to his best metal guys. Hey, I'm assuming it's guys. Might have been, there might have been some metal women there too. No disrespect to the women. Could be, could have, could have happened. To his metal people and said, I need a snake made out of bronze. And they were able to put it together. And Moses had his carpenter folks put up a great big pole and they hung that metal snake on the pole. And although it seemed absurd, Moses gave the word, look at the snake and be healed. And some people thought that's ridiculous and didn't. And the death continued. The people who looked at the snake and said, this is going to be God's method of healing. I'm going to trust him for a change miraculous healings occurred. Anyone bitten by a snake who looked at the bronze snake, he lived or she lived. This is Lent in the Old Testament. In fact, it is such a story eerily reminiscent of Good Friday that Jesus himself in talking with Nicodemus said, I'm going to be lifted up too, just like that snake in the desert. What we're looking at this Lent, as the image, the central image of all Lent, is the crucifixion of Christ. You're looking at another variation of the bronze snake. Because you're looking at a description, at something exemplified, that's the very thing you're trying to escape. You and I want to get away from the wrath of God. We want to escape death and the grave and hell. And on Good Friday, we're looking at all those things. Good Friday's ugly. Do not be fooled. I'm wearing a cross right now, my Lenten cross. It's made out of nails soldered together. But it looks like a sweet piece of jewelry. I have a, a really nice Easter cross that I wear too. And uh, one grade school kid one year came to me on Easter Sunday and he saw my silver Easter cross and he said, nice bling. You probably, uh, a lot of you ladies have jewelry made out of crosses. It's, it's like a, a pretty thing. The fact is, crosses are ugly. They were instruments of torture. They're as ugly as that snake up on a pole. And Jesus was ugly on the cross. The prophet Isaiah said it was going to be like that. He said, you were disfigured. Your appearance was marred. You were, you, Isaiah was looking ahead at the suffering servant. I thought, you're a mess. Jesus looked terrible. Blood streaming down his face. His back was raw. 
the blood dripping out of his wounds. He looked beaten and defeated. He was in agony. We're looking at all the things that we hope to avoid. And now, just as in the desert, God says, look at that and be healed. And here is your way out. Don't say how ridiculous. Don't say, how could something that happened 2,000 years ago make a difference in my future? That's absurd. Don't say that. That's how people die of snake bite, the snake bite of the serpent, Satan, driving his fangs into us. At Christ and live. And just as the people found healing from the snake venom, you and I find healing from all the things that ail us, from the disease of our sin. We not only are pardoned for the things we did, we're pardoned for the good things we failed to do. We are pardoned for the very disease itself that lives in us. And God said, Christ is the anti-venom. The venom won't hurt or kill you when you are looking at the ugly spectacle on Calvary. There you will receive forgiveness of all. There you will be given the promise of God's favor. There you will be given the promise, not just of a longer physical life, but uh, look at Christ on his cross. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will live. This Lenten season, for all its being immersed in its stressful stories, for all its somberness and penitential flavor, Ultimately, behind it all is the thrilling and relieving good news that God has not stopped loving you as he did not stop loving the Israelites. You'd think he would have thrown them all away, but for his name's sake, he decided to provide a rescue and give them a chance to once again redeclare their trust and confidence in him. May this Lenten season do the same for you once again to have you raise up your eyes, as Jesus said, to see the one who was lifted up on your behalf and whoever believes in him will live. This is good news for God's people. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.